You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, I'm Rachel. Welcome to Punching Out. I'm Lou. Welcome to Punching Out. I'm Mev. Welcome and to today, Welcome to Punching Out. Hey, we're all here, and we're going to be talking about um, very tough stuff, talking about caregiving in quarantine. Um, we sound very chipper, but this is really difficult, personal, intimate, vulnerable stuff that we've all been dealing with. So this is distinct. I wanted to make the distinction between an episode we did a while back on emotional labor. Lou, what episode was that one? Yeah, it was episode 94. Right. Called emotional labor. Yes. <laughs> it's it's honestly like one of the best episodes I've been on. Um, it was me, Noah, and Gina. And you've been on some really on good that. ones, so that's saying a lot. So <laughs> hey, folks, check it thanks. out. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> um, yeah, so on that episode, we talk about Kind of in in this episode's interesting in in the context of that other episode, we're going to be talking a lot about caregiving, in particular unpaid caregiving that's done by family members mm-hmm. um, for for loved ones, if they're parents or siblings or children. This is labor that is often unpaid and that is very difficult, um, both physically, mentally, but especially emotionally, and. In that other episode we did on emotional labor, we do make clear the distinction between emotional labor and social reproduction. And emotional labor, as a quick reminder, is basically the act of having to control your emotions or manipulate the emotions of others as part of your paid job. So being on a retail sales floor, the act of having to smile through it all, like smile through the pain. Smile through the abuse. Yeah, smile through the abuse or in nursing. Yep. Uh, the, social work, the, teaching. Yeah, social work. So so lo- lots of different industries have this component to them, um, especially if you're in the service industry mm-hmm. um, and the various aspects of that service industry. Social reproduction is basically the, the upkeep that we have to do in order to make ourselves continue to function to do our paid labor. So chores. Uh actually making babies and caring uh, laundry, for those babies feeding yeah caring for those babies housework housework work. all of all of those things yeah all the and stuff the, that goes towards the propagation of our species right precisely and and in the context of capitalism specifically uh making sure that there continues to be a labor force right. social reproduction is generally a gendered area mm-hmm. um there is a question of whether the, the labor involved in that is gender comes out of that or or what the direction is. Yeah, the chicken um, and egg. As far as gender issue. Norms. Yeah. And we, there's also uh, a big racial component to it as well now exactly. that um now that white women have the privilege of the second shift, um, they were able to get uh poor usually immigrants to come in and take care of their children as who also have to take care of their own children. Yeah. Right. Outsource. Right. So that, that aspect of 
Exactly. It's, it's a very layered subject. What we're talking about today is kind of a weird intersection of the two because caregiving is and perhaps might possibly one day be paid. Mm-hmm. It is extremely emotionally taxing mm-hmm. and it does intersect with the social reproduction aspect. Sorry. Um, so this is a very like niche not niche, but like it's a it's a weird bubble yeah. that exists between the two. But before, because Punching Out has already delivered the definitive take on emotional <laughs> labor. Again, episode ninety four. We you never need to learn it ever again because we said it. Just want to like make sure that that people understand like we're talking about emotions and we're talking about labor, and there is some intersection. But we do we understand what the difference is because we've all learned and what listen to Punching Out. Caregiving is a big deal, and. It has only become a bigger deal as our population ages. And from the different like statistics that I could find, it seems like um, some of them, like all of them are shocking, but some of them are more shocking. And I'm trying to figure out, yeah, which one is the most recent, the most accurate, Oh, we should also preface that we're kind of coming at this more from an elder care angle because of our personal experiences, but um, there is like a child care element and that's true. There's, there's so much to this. <laughs> yeah. We're focusing more on, yeah, being like grown children caring for parents or grandparents or, um, you know, some cases dealing with aunts and uncles. Um Although, yeah, we'll get into it later, but it's interesting that the legislation, the little bit of legislation that is available to support caregivers, yeah, says which which family members are covered and which aren't. And I noticed that aunts and uncles are not on the list. So, yeah, interesting stuff. But we'll get into that a little bit further down the road. But the prevalence of informal caregivers in the community, um, it sounds like... From the 2020 AARP report on caregiving in the U.S., which it looks like they put out a big report every five years or 10 years, something like that, said that family caregivers now encompass more than one in five Americans, which is at least from another article around 41.8 million Americans provide unpaid care to an adult age 50 or older. Um, and a majority of the 89% who are related to the care recipient are caring for a parent. So going back to those relationships, it's it's fraught. Yeah, often these caregivers are informal, meaning they are untrained and therefore underappreciated because they are often invisible and undertake a role not characterized by a salary, title, or defined by specific duties. And it was interesting just reading a little bit of the websites about the legislation, like the Family Medical Leave Act and the paid family leave um, in New York State, that like they had this long list of what those responsibilities could encompass. And just reading it like brings me back to taking care of my mother-in-law. Like it's so comprehensive, but also so lacking. Like you end up doing anything and everything that somebody needs. And like, there's no way to denote all of that in a piece of legislation adequately. Yeah, it's it's definitely a situation where, you know, we can talk about caregiving, um, unpaid caregiving 
in in general terms, but unless you've actually been in that situation, it's really hard to comprehend how overwhelming and all encompassing that kind of labor is. Um, and and that's that's true of paid and unpaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least if it's paid, like generally there's some kind of, you know, if that's your your occupation, generally there's some kind of understanding that you get to leave that at some point. Like you clock out and then, you know, you have other things to deal with. If it's unpaid, if it's a family member, especially if you live with that family member, it's 24 seven and health needs for, for individuals can be anything from mobility assistance, um, bathing, feeding, medication, uh, anything and everything that could, that is part of functioning as an alive person is Included and not having any formalized training for that too. Like at least if you're paid, presumably you have some training and you have some people to ask for assistance or you know information, advice on how to do certain things if you don't know. But right. as in you know informal family caregiver, you're figuring this stuff out without any training. You know the internet is just a black hole of endless information. Sometimes it's hard to discern what's good information and what isn't. Um, and it can also get really overwhelming to try and do research on something that you need to know right now. There's definitely an added element of, of urgency to everything. And there's also the added element of, <clears throat> I don't know if you experience this, Rachel, but there's also an element of grief. Oh, yeah. Um, that you're dealing with on top of all of this. I mean, I, in the past five years, I have helped my mother shepherd my father who had multiple sclerosis, our aging cat, our aging dog, which I'm going to include because they're family members. I mean, and there's no, there's no health insurance and paid family leave for taking care of a 17 year old dog. Right. That's so true. Um, and um, and there is health insurance now, but that's more of a money right. thing. But I'm yeah, health insurance, and, as we've talked about before, too, is also kind of a scam and, you know, basically exists only to not pay for things that are necessary. Amen. Yeah. And most recently, is, uh, we just dealt with the passing of my grandfather um, a couple of weeks ago, and he was in a facility. He's in assisted living. My grandmother still is. Um, she has dementia, so she's in the memory care unit. Um, he was in a different section, so even throughout COVID, they were separated. Um, and even we talk about like even the people who are paid to do this, right? Um, you end up being a support system for each other because I mean, my mother was there almost every day when I came down, I'm running errands all the time. Um, and you're paying, you know, most of my grandfather's retire, you know, every, his savings, everything, his life assets are all going into this care facility, which frankly, doesn't provide everything that you think that they should. And you're there all the time um, when you're in the hospitals. Like, you have to be there. It's not – you can't just – especially with the how our medical mm-hmm. system is. Like, you need an advocate. Yep. Um, and, I mean, I, we weren't given – well, we didn't have some resources that I think we could have explored. But, like, at that time, nobody was paying us to sit in the hospital with my father. My my mother was working part-time. Luckily, my uh, my aunt had recently been forced into retirement, so she had the time and she could come down. But when my father finally, you know, passed away, the decision had to be made by my aunt because my mom was at work, you know. And when the dog died, 
my my mom was at work and it's heartbreaking when you can't actually be there for them um but you're there for everything else um it's tough that's that's actually a a, a fundamental part i think of the 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 conundrum of caregiving is we want to be there we want to make sure that our loved ones have adequate care and comfort in their toughest moments and whether it's end of life care or like chemo support uh, anything like that there's so much guilt involved in it so much because i would say shame on the one hand shame is even more so than guilt like guilt is kind of temporary and fleeting shame invades your soul and it's there yeah but and it and it's but it i i think it's coupled with the guilt because on the one hand you're giving you are giving all it all but it never feels like enough yeah like because you can't you don't know because you don't have the medical training to know how to clean a thick line. Yep. You're always uh, second or, guessing yourself. Right. Or or what if like in my situation, my mom had stage four pancreatic cancer and her chemo ordeal was a nightmare. Yep. Like the I have recurring nightmares about just trying to get her to eat. And like the the fact that I couldn't do anything for her, I couldn't make her feel better. I couldn't figure out what she would eat. Um, like I, I would play this game where I wouldn't eat until I figured out if she would eat. And then because she wouldn't eat it, I'd end up eating it. So I uh, lost some weight that, that <laughs> oh, summer. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> this is definitely one of the things where we have to smile in the dark a little bit here. Yeah. Um, yeah if you lose a sense of guys. humor, it's almost impossible to cope. But even still... Like comedy and tragedy are, yeah, right next to each other for a reason. But Lou, you and I talked about, and and I assume, Mev, this is probably also the case a little bit with a grandparent where there's this weird, like additional burden on top of the grief and the shame and the, you know, just overwhelm of caretaking in general. There's this added element to the burden where there's this role reversal that happens where people who see themselves as the primary givers of care now have to be receiving it from people that they are used to giving it to literally wipe the butt. Exactly. Exactly. And, and bathe them and yeah. And feed them. And so like, not only is that additional grief as you know, children or grandchildren of those people who took care of us for most of our lives. But it's also really hard for them to accept that help and that support without being resentful or ashamed or embarrassed themselves. And so if they end up pushing back against it, even though they so desperately need that help because they don't want to be vulnerable in front of you, even though they are, then it's like a, it's a battle. It's a constant battle to try and support somebody who doesn't want to be supported by you. And the whole situation just sucks, but that makes it suck even worse. <laughs> it's- well, I know with um, like when we talk about guilt and shame, like I know I felt guilty on some of the days where I didn't want to go see my grandfather. Cause it was just, it was just too emotionally exhausting. Yeah. But on the other hand, None of my cousins, he has five grandchildren altogether, one through marriage, and all of them are working right mm-hmm. now through the pandemic. And I'm sure they they don't have the, they didn't have the time to be there. And I'm like, well, I'm the only grandkid that can show up. So I, I, if I don't show up, like, right, 
it, you know, so there's that, that I felt guilty about that. And my mom's just like, if you need a break, take a break, it'll be okay. But it, it was tough. And then, but on the other hand, I could see the, the shame that my grandfather felt because he's, you know, he's the patriarch of the family. Right. He's, he's the one who's always held everything up and made sure his three kids, my mom and her two brothers were all taken care of and everything. And then of course the caregiving has come down to my mom, mm -hmm. conveniently the woman. Yeah. Um, she has two brothers. Uh, she's also you said, uh -huh. yes, she's also, she's also the oldest, but she's like, she's the most responsible right. out of the three of them. Um, no, no, <laughs> Super shade to my uncles. Yeah. Um, but, um, it might be very lovely um, people, but maybe not the best caregivers. Yes, but yeah, and, and it, it falls it fell to my mom. But I could see like my grandfather, he he was a product of the the Great Depression. Like he had that that just ingrown I don't know if it's misogyny, I don't know what it was, but just just this complete just recalcitrance when it came to just accepting my mother's help. Right. You know, or asking for it. Like he was he's really great about like my mom went around looking for four different four different types of uh ginger ale because it didn't taste the same because of course as you get older you know it changes and of course no it's not me it's the formula has changed when the formula has been the same the whole time but like my mom goes and does all this stuff and then like there's no like thank you or like anything like that but there is like just this overall like you know that he loves you right. and he appreciates it but he's not gonna say right it. exactly like the lack of ability to express gratitude to show those feelings to talk about how hard it is and i think we did talk earlier in our own conversations about like products of the sort of lasting products of the depression and then children of those people who lived through the depression i feel like they absorbed that trauma too like that inherited trauma of like you know life is hard things are bad you just you know, suck it up and move along and you don't talk about your feelings. You just suppress them and get on with it. And you don't ask for help. Right. You absolutely don't ask for help because then you're a burden. And you don't want to be, yes. And you don't want to be a charity case right. or, or anything like that. Um, my, my grandfather definitely had that, that definitely had like that Irish Catholic, yeah. like I cannot, I cannot show any weakness at all. Well, see, that's interesting because my family's German Protestant. They're the same. So I think it's just a generational thing. And it's like they're, they're going to bootstrap themselves out of having cancer. Like, psh, good luck with that, buddy. And my mother-in-law is uh, Irish Protestant. So same deal. She was so obstinate when it came to yeah, letting anybody help her and then resenting the people that did and wishing, you know, just constantly wishing that things weren't so. And that just added a layer of suffering onto this already awful situation. Like, mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot lately about the difference between pain and suffering. And that pain often we don't have a choice about. Suffering is optional. And suffering has to do with expectations. And when our expectations don't match reality, that's when the suffering can just get out of control. And so I think for my mother-in-law, like she had an idea of how things should be. 
And she was constantly fighting against how things were that made it so much harder for us to try and support her in any way, shape or form that would make her feel any better. And as a people pleaser who was in a caretaking role that wasn't optional, that was also really hard for me because there's no way to please somebody like that. You're just always a disappointment. So I don't know what the answer is to that because I think there's also an element we started talking about, like how do people contend with their own mortality and how do we talk about that? And I think this pandemic has been such a problem for our society in particular because we don't do a good job of talking about mortality or preparing anybody for it. And all of us have been kind of forced collectively to face it together. And then, yeah, caretaking in quarantine adds more layers of mortality to that already tough I think this reflects a lot about our feelings of death in general. Um, I started watching, there's a great YouTuber, Caitlin Doherty, Ask a Mortician, and she talks a lot about different um, death rituals and she's into sustainable burials and all that stuff. And I've always been interested in religions and stuff and all these rituals that we have around death. And we definitely, in America, there's a, there's a certain removal from it right like we now especially now that people are getting cremated more which i'm not against that like my father was cremated that's probably how i'm gonna go like that's great but like when my father died i saw his body in the hospital bed but then i never saw his body again um and that was kind of it was tough because it's like every time i drove past the hospital for like a year it was like oh dad's just at the hospital Whereas this time around when my grandfather passed away, like, and I'm sure the funeral home guys and the nurses were like, all right, she's a little weird. But like, I stayed for when the nursing home guys came to took my grandfather. My mom couldn't do it. She she sat outside, which is perfectly fine. Yep. Like, it's not not for everybody. I get it. But I just I needed to see it. And it was actually really sweet how they they, they you know, they got him off the bed and they moved him onto the stretcher and they 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 um Sorry if I'm getting warning. This is, a, but they 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 um they zipped up the body bag and you know his head was still there and they covered him with this beautiful homemade blanket and then they wheeled him out. Yeah, and it was just just seeing the process of of just his body being moved and like rigor mortis is 100 percent a thing. Like I I know about it. Like you watch right. his crime crime shows. Like but but it's it's just another thing to actually see yeah. death in person and kind of really sit with what mortality means. Um, and I think yeah. we have a tendency to avoid that. Absolutely. In our avoid it at all costs. And even the way we talk about it, like in my day job, I work with cancer patients and the way we talk about warriors and fighting and, you know, even, even at like memorial services, we talk about how somebody fought until the very end. And sometimes I've been forced to wonder like thinking about quality of life and whether it's always worth fighting until the very end through like in, in that case, like chemotherapy can be such a miserable process. Like Lou, as you were talking about, it's just, I, I mean, depending on the meds and depending on the regimen and depending how somebody responds to them, it can be just this brutal, awful, miserable, full of suffering process. And 
you know, if somebody has basically a terminal diagnosis and they still force themselves through that process, that the rest of their life is taken up with dealing with the side effects of these medications that just make things so much worse. Like, I, I wonder, is it worth it? And I mean, each person has to decide that for themselves. But like at the end with my mother-in-law who had lung cancer and passed away at the beginning of the pandemic, um, she she was just in such rough shape and, you know, was fighting really hard and putting so much pressure on herself And it didn't really allow her space to make peace with where she was at and what was happening, which she actually did in like the last week, I would say. But things had been so stressful and so bad for months prior to that, that like, I wonder how different it could have looked for her and how much more peace she could have derived if, if, yeah, our, our society prepared people better for that. And if we talked about it more openly and supported people, like, honestly, the one thing I will say is that the palliative care docs um, were the most helpful in having those hard conversations with her and with us, because all the other docs, I think part of the problem is they don't have training for that. And there's also sort of a... Um, what do we call it? Like a medical detachment that has to happen. I mean, our healthcare system, mm-hmm. you know, it, with all, it's the pits. It, yeah. We'll, we'll get into more of that later too, but you know, medical professionals are trained to prolong people's lives for as long as possible. And maybe that's not always the best thing, depending on the circumstances and the context. And I think a lot of doctors are very reticent to have those conversations about whether it is that context or not in their professional opinions. And that's for lots of reasons. I mean, we have a very litigious culture. There's also a lot of, you know, gray areas, but. Right. But it's just another layer that makes, you know, the unprofessional aspect of caregiving so much harder. Right. Um, just just to and bring I, it back to that. I, I will also say that the 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 caregivers that we were that I've worked were caregivers as in like the nurses, mm-hmm. the the medical per- technicians, you yeah. know, who aren't even, you know, they're they they don't even have a high enough status or whatever, and everybody's underpaid anyways. But um but thinking of all of those people that that put in that time and effort, and then when my grandfather died, like they were grieving too. And we were really, we were very fortunate in that the caregivers were, if they couldn't have that conversation with my grandfather, they could at least have that conversation with my mom. And I'm really grateful because I, I live in Rochester. She's down in Connecticut. um, And my grandparents are in Connecticut as well. So knowing that she had that support system there when I was, you know, up in, in Rochester trying to take care of my own stuff, because talk about a sandwich generation. I'm still <laughs> not, I'm unemployed right now. You know, I'm still trying to find my footing. So she's, aren't we all, she's both taking care of me, but I'm taking care of her too. And we're, we're just trying to, to make it through 
this, which I think is what we're all doing, you know, and family. I think the pandemic uh, definitely made people reassess their family situations as well and their values. Yeah. And also that added element of like, how do you support people that you love from afar or virtually in order to do it safely? Like, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, like now that we're able to access vaccines more readily, that's, I'm sure, helping people to you know, take part in caregiving in a more active way. And now that things are opening up and stuff for better or worse, but yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, when everything was locked down and yeah, the added stress of how do we keep everybody safe? And there's only so much support that you can lend from afar or virtually. And then those, you know, guilt and shame elements come into play even more. So yeah, it's just, it's just a cluster. (laughs) There were, um, I believe, 20 residents at the place where my grandparents were that died of COVID. My grandmother, bless her soul, she survived. Um, She uh, got COVID? But but it was, she got COVID, but yes, and she she survived. But my my grandfather, the last time, like my grandparents were married for 70 years, like towards the end there, they were like, she she was basically attached to him at the hip because of her dementia. Um, But from October of last, uh, I'm trying to think, but when from the pan- when the pandemic hit, like they hadn't seen each other for at least a year, and my grandfather, I mean, he. But the other thing is, he also could have gone up to see her. But I think a part of it too was like he didn't want her to see him the way he was, yeah. Um, which goes into that whole like shame around dying, right, thing. and embarrassment um, at being but- vulnerable. Yeah. And that, that was kind of, I think that was kind of the most heartbreaking thing of the whole thing was that, you know, they had been together for so long and then they, she didn't get to say goodbye. But my, my, my grandmother's mind is she's not entirely there anymore. Um, And we haven't, we haven't even told her because we just don't want to re-traumatize her um, at this point. So um, I I just hope that wherever her brain is at, that she has that that image of my grandfather before he got sick. Yeah. Oh, that's tough. Sorry to make things really <laughs> heavy, but <laughs> well, like it's a it's a heavy topic. I mean, this is this is the trick of it is this is this is emotional labor. It just happens to be unpaid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we we should take a break here because I, I want to talk about like the economic reasons why this is happening so much and more and more people are put in this position of having to do the actual labor of caring for loved ones mm-hmm. while also being enmeshed in the the personal lives of, of the people they care for, which is, as we have discussed this entire half hour, why it is so difficult. So if it's okay with you guys, I think we should take a break yep. and we come back. We'll talk about- Sounds good. All of that. So see you soon. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Punching Out. I am Lou and I am still here with Rachel. Hi. And Mev. Hello. 
And if you missed our first half hour, we are talking about caregiving, specifically the unpaid kind that is often performed by family members for their elderly uh, relatives or sick relatives or children or anybody in their household. Um, trick is you don't get paid for it. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that uh, that have to do with system- systemic problems, especially for healthcare. We were, yeah, talking about how basically like the reliance on informal unpaid caregiving is so essential to prop up the for-profit healthcare system in the United States. And really like we talked about that social reproduction aspect of it too. So it props up not just the for-profit healthcare system, but capitalism in general. Our capitalism economy could not function without unpaid informal caregiving on a wide scale. And I found this quote from a like very recent, it was like a late January article from the Journal of Gerontology and Geriatric Medicine called Caregiving in Quarantine uh, that said the U.S. healthcare system is so reliant on informal caregiver labor that they are considered an essential shadow workforce, often substituting for long-term care and hospital stays, which once again, it's like because people don't have affordable, comprehensive health care to support those needs, the informal caregivers, often family members, have to step in because, yeah, we can't afford health care in a formal location, like in a hospital or a care facility. And, you know, people would go into massive amounts of debt um, if they had to. And a lot of people do. They have to decide between health care and housing or food or other needs. And nobody should ever have to make that choice in my humbly righteous opinion. And I think that uh, you ladies would agree with me. Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. I know there were certain choices my grandfather made because he didn't want his children's inheritance to what was left to be completely taken away. Um, Yeah. Because it's, it's where, where they are. There was a, a, one of the, there's care workers from different agencies that come in and one of the people went to my mom and they said, you're paying out the nose for service that's at like a lower tier because of where we live when you could be somewhere else paying the same amount and getting the actual amount of care that your mother needs Um, because my grandmother has dementia so she needs she needs that memory care Um, and she also has issues with her legs so like they need to hoyer her out of the bed so she has a lot of needs um and it's it's weird when you're paying so much for these facilities and then my mom keeps getting calls from them about oh well you need to get her conditioner oh you need to get her um a wipe warmer you know for for um sanitary for wipes the, not the um for for the bathing wipes the baby mm-hmm. wipes yep. to warm them up um and she's like i i could order it through through ours and she's like of course you guys are going to go get the most expensive one so we'll we'll get it ourselves thank you um but like the fact that you're still paying through you're paying through the nose and then they're just like oh can we just tack on a 44 dollar wipe warmer right there's so many costs that aren't covered even if somebody is in a facility of care that yeah nobody thinks about and there's not monetary support for those sorts of things. Like you can't claim those things on health insurance. Like my parents, I have a a younger sister with special needs and 
they have so much debt that they've racked up over her 22 years of life that, you know, even though she's, she does qualify for a lot of services, but it doesn't cover everything. And those, those costs rack up over time. And I don't think my parents will ever get out of debt. Like I, I don't know if there is such a thing as an inheritance anymore for our generations and younger, because people are having to blow through all of their savings to deal with their care needs as they get older. Yeah. We talked about, yeah, as the boomers age, their needs are starting to weigh heavily on millennials and younger. And we all have student loan debt up the wazoo. So it's not like, yeah, we have a whole lot. Most of us don't have houses or or like any other assets or that kind of thing. Yeah. Assets. And, And speaking of student debt, like, part of the money that my parents were saving for my college fund mm-hmm. went towards saving my life. Like I had, I had a, I was born with biliary atresia, which they still, last I checked, they don't know where it comes from, but it's like an autoimmune disorder where um, your body attacks the bile ducts of the liver and you can't function Ooh. without a liver. It just, yeah. you can't. So um, I had a living related transplant. So it was my mother who gave me a part of her liver Talk about like my mother's the ultimate caregiver because she took care of me, gave me a liver. And then she also had to take care of my father who had multiple sclerosis. He was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and Lyme disease at the same time a year after my parents got married. Oh, so and there was already a 10 year age difference between them. So my mother, like her whole life has been caregiving. Um, and, and she's great at it. She's like, I wouldn't be here. And my dad probably wouldn't have been as long as he did if it hadn't been for my mom. And this is with my, my father worked for, think of like the Kodak of where we, down where I live, um, where I grew up. Um, it's like that kind of like a company that everybody is just a part of. Mm -hmm. Um, they're still, they're still big. So that's why I'm not going to name them. But um, he had a wonderful health insurance plan through them. And because of that, we could go out to the University of Nebraska because Yale, which was closer to where we lived, they kept having people die at the time. But that was we were privileged enough that we could go out to Nebraska. And even then we were staying at the Ronald McDonald house. So even when you do have the money, um, and my mom was talking about these other kids who didn't who expired because their parents couldn't be there and their parents probably couldn't be there because they were busy working to pay off all of the medical debt. Right. Yeah. That's an important aspect of it is on top of it being so expensive. So on the one hand, you can't afford to actually pay for the care that, that your loved ones need and you can't put them in the facilities that they need that could have professional people who know how to do this, who have trained to do this. This is their, what they do for a living. And by the way, they're paid crap too. Right. So you're paying for it. It's expensive. It's uh, inadequate. Yep. So you have to take up the rest of the burden and you don't get paid for it. Right. In so many cases, especially if it is a long process, which in many cases, if we're talking about elder care, and as Rachel pointed out, yeah, in the last segment, people are supposed to be sticking around as long as possible, which means you can need this kind of care for years and sometimes decades. Well, Mev, um, what was depending that? Depending on what's Whoa. going on. You found a, a stat on that. Um, nearly 42% of caregivers report that they have been providing care for two to five years, while approximately 27% of family caregivers have been providing care for five to 10 years. 
And with my mom, it's been more like 20 to 30 years. Yeah. So, and of course I wasn't, uh, we had, again, like I said, we were, and it's weird to talk about, oh, I had, my father had MS. I had a liver transplant, but we were privileged. Like, it's just a weird sentence to say because we were able to go to these, these places and get the care that we needed. Um, right. Uh, whereas other people like, like you were at home, I can't imagine. Um, my dad was at home for, for a while too. And we had the home health aides come in. Yeah. Um, and we couldn't, there's no way that between my mother and I, that we could have done that just right. the two of us. Cause I, just the training, I would have had to leave college at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, it's, it, it ended up working out well that my aunt had to, she was retired by the time that this had happened so she could be there and help out. But like, it's so much work it's, and it's labor. Like we don't, we don't, yeah, we don't talk about it as labor, you know, it's, it's, it's work. Um, it's exhausting yeah. on a mental, physical and emotional level. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's the, that's the trick is, you know, social reproduction, we've talked about it on, on not just the emotional labor episode, but other episodes as well. It's a very gendered work. Yeah. Um, it's a very difficult work. The answer isn't always going to be pay the workers uh, for social reproduction, because honestly, the answer to capitalism will never be more capitalism. I've said that many, many times. Um, and we can't turn all our relationships into how am I going to get paid out of this? Right. Uh, but there has to be some kind of answer and solution to this. Um, you know, if that's actually adequate health care or paid family leave or anything else, like that would be something. Or a combination of all of the above would be great. I mean, we, we did start talking about in our own conversations, like what, what supports are available, even though they are inadequate, but there's something. We talked about the Family Medical Leave Act federally, FMLA, as it's known, which the big distinction, like we all live in New York State and we are privileged and lucky um, to have paid family leave, which is like the state version of FMLA. So FMLA is unpaid job protected leave for up to 12 weeks, 12 work weeks specifically. Although I did discover looking at the website quickly that if you are... A, um, a current um, service person with the military, you can get up to 26 work weeks. But New York State paid family leave, even though it says it's paid family leave, it's not your full salary. It's up to two thirds of your salary. And I think that was like transitioned in over time. I think we're at 67% of salary for up and to that's 12 also- work weeks just New York state. Cause yay. Right. States rights. Yeah. And they're very, they're very forward on the website for PFL to say that it is the most progressive family leave act in the United States. So 67% of your salary for 12 weeks is the best that we've got in this country. Yeah. And, and it's not all workers. You have to qualify for the program, which means you need to work for your employer for a certain amount of time. You have to work I think it's like either more than 180 days in a year mm-hmm. uh, or more than 20 hours a week mm-hmm. over a six-month period, um, which is very confusing if you fit in either category. Um, like, yeah. So se- seasonal workers, you don't necessarily do that. Or if you only work a part-time job, you don't necessarily qualify. This is also paid through withholdings 
in your paycheck. And it's not a lot. I mean, I will grant it that. It's like five bucks per paycheck is the yeah. withholdings for, for the majority of people. Does that mean that if you haven't actively been like, do you have to opt into those withholdings in order to You have qualify? to opt out. Okay. You have to opt out. So if you are pay, if you are like have a seasonal job or um, don't work enough, then there is a form you have to sign that says I opt out. Technically speaking, if you then qualify for it mm-hmm. and want to opt back in, they can retroactively take the withholdings out. Um, so if you've worked at a company for five years at, as like a two days a week or something like that, and then you get hired full time and you opt in, they can take the withholdings for those five years, which is, you know, cool not and not stupid at all. I'll also point out that um, I, I one of the jobs that I did, um, I worked at a call center and their attendance policy was ridiculous. Like if you miss more than two days, you lost your commission. Any commission that you want, that you had earned just went out the window if you were absent for more than two days. And I was worried because I get sick all the time, at least not with COVID. Like this is the healthiest <laughs> I've ever been because I'm not, in, you know, I'm not in crowded office spaces or retail situations right. or whatever. Um, but I get sick. I would get sick very often. And I was like, this isn't going to help. This isn't going to work for me. And, sh- and my, uh, my instructor at the time was just like, oh, well, you can go for, you might be able to go for family medical lead. And, and I was like, awesome. Can you guys help me? No, we can't. Like every, every place that I've been at when I talk, when I ask about family medical leave, they're like, they don't want anything to do with it. You have to figure it out for yourself. No one's going to help you. Yeah, we did, uh, Punching Out did a Human Resentments, uh, I think it's our second or first Human Resentments, um, about paid family leave and FMLA and how employers do tend to think that if you are taking FMLA, you're trying to get one over on them, forgetting, of course, that it is unpaid. Right. You're not getting a paid vacation. You are literally just saying, I'm not here, and then right. you don't get a paycheck for it. But they have to hold your job for you. It's a job protected. So I, yeah, they're probably feeling put upon by, you know, not having to pay you, but holding your position until you come back. Right. Yeah. So, so employers, (sighs) capitalism (laughs) is the worst guys. Mev, Uh, what did you call it? Capitalist uh, crapshoot? Yes. Since we can't swear on the air is the capitalist crapshoot. Yeah, they're going to punish you at every level of this. So if you're trying to do the right thing and take care of your loved ones, your job is going to punish you by making that as difficult as possible to do to the point where many, many people who have to do this long term um, end up having to quit their jobs, which is zero income. Right. PFL doesn't cover you if you have to quit because you've run out of your 12 weeks. Yeah. Um, it, it, it took my mom's employer when she was still there two weeks to approve her wearing sneakers at her job. And they closed the case four times before they actually resolved it. Like I had to get on the phone and use my new acquired, newly acquired call center background knowledge to like get it so that Macy's would finally be like, oh, yeah, she can wear she can sit and she can wear sneakers because of oh. her her leg problems. Like we had to prove. You have mm-hmm. to consistently, pr- it's incredibly punitive. You're constantly proving that you are sick enough. You're poor enough, which having me with my liver transplant, like I've never been disabled enough. 
it's enough that it's, you know, it's, it's enough that it's annoying for me and it makes things more difficult, especially with employers and, and, um, attendance, which I can go on about that, but I won't right now. Um, but it's like, it's really difficult when you have these very set, like you have to, especially with paid family leave and all that stuff, you have to, you have to check all of the, all of the boxes. And if you don't do it correctly, they will go after you for money or whatever you you'll get in trouble. Um, even though these forms are so complicated in the first place that it's really easy to mess up. Actually, I discovered on the paid family leave site, because I guess there's a healthcare providers section where basically your, your loved one's doctor has to certify and they can refuse to sign the healthcare provider certification for care of family member with serious health condition if they believe that the employee's family member does not have a serious health condition. So I don't know how often that happens, but just knowing that a healthcare provider could be like, yeah, this isn't serious. Like, this isn't worthy of care from you. You don't deserve to have paid family leave to care for this person. And like, that's a very subjective, that's a lot of power. When I, I, because I've had to take FMLA, I took it from my mom, I took nine weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents were living in Southeast Asia at the time. Um, So I had to fax or I guess scan. We did have email. Mm -hmm. Uh, I emailed these, those forms because the FMLA, same thing, like a doctor has to sign off and be like, yeah, they're super sick. So I I just want to be like, I want to have been in the headspace of the poor, uh, Malaysian doctor, the the guy who had to think through what in the world is the U.S. doing? Um, yeah. Who had to sign off on that form to say, yeah, she's dying. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's serious. And, and just be in that headspace of what in the world is the U.S. thinking? And, and honestly, thank God my mom got sick overseas, like so much cheaper. That and, also brings up the fact that employers are more likely to give you time off for a funeral than before the person actually dies. But even then, we were talking about bereavement leave and how, what was it, three days? You can get three days for grief, which I don't know about you guys, but three days is an inadequate, woefully inadequate amount of time to grieve. I think most psychologists and other people that I've I've just spoken to who've dealt with the grief, it's like, it's at least a year. Yep. It takes at yeah. least a year yeah, to precisely. fully process it. So just as context to that three days is not a guaranteed thing right now. Um, Joe Biden, it's part of his uh, family plan, the American Families Plan or whatever. The American American Family Rescue Plan, I think. Rescue Plan. There we go. And this was just proposed, Um, what, like last week? Something like that. Yeah, very recently. Where in there, it's talking about having a a system closer to what uh, New York PFL is, um, Mm -hmm. where they give you 12 weeks at 67% pay. Put in over 10 years, like working up to the two. Working up to it. 10 years. (laughs) Uh, And then three days of bereavement. Um, I know right now my husband is allowed one day, uh, which is really cool when all of our relatives live way out of state. Yeah. Um, So that's that's great. Thanks, guys. Yeah, that's so helpful. So helpful. Although, yeah, what else did it – because we looked at that American Families Plan – And it also said it would provide direct support to workers and families by creating a nationally 
comprehensive paid family leave and medical family leave program. Oh, this was the interesting thing that will bring the American system in line with competitor nations that offer paid leave programs, which we laughed about because it's like, okay, if it's going to take 10 years to phase in up to 67% of a person's salary for 12 weeks, like I've heard that like in Canada, for example, I have Canadian citizenship. I know that lucky. <laughs> well, you know, they're not doing so good right now. Um, they're struggling. Yeah, yeah, they're struggling too. And they've also privatized a whole bunch of stuff and yeah. blah, blah. That's a whole different I'm ready to just thing. go up into the wilderness where I can't be touched <laughs> by anybody at this point. Well, you still need <laughs> well, care. But anyway. Yeah, that's the thing. So in Canada, I know that after you have a baby, for example, you get a year, a full year of leave. Not none of this six weeks, 12 weeks crap, a year to bond with your baby. And yeah, and it's job protected. And I'm pretty sure it's paid. Giving a year is absolutely amazing. So the the whole thing that we're bringing our system in line with competitor nations is laughable. Nonsense. Yeah. And and it's still not addressing the core root of the problems that we have, which is our healthcare Capitalism. is too expensive. Yeah. Capitalism, <laughs> Capitalism is a problem. Um, but it, it still doesn't address the core problems, which are healthcare, assisted living, nursing homes are way too expensive. Um, they are inadequately staffed on top mm-hmm. of being way too expensive and provide inadequate care. Family members have to pick up the slack on it. Mm-hmm. And Sure, you can get some of your pay, but again, what if it takes longer than 12 weeks for your dad to die? What if? Right. Um, and like, what if you need time to grieve after that too? Right. Yeah. Yeah. My dad, the only parent I have left, just got diagnosed with lymphoma and it's very treatable, but his chemo course is still going to take four months. Yeah. And, and it's still grueling. He lives out of state. Yeah. He lives yeah. out of state. I don't know what I'm going to do. And we're still in a pandemic. We're still in a pandemic. And travel is is, travel is dicey at best. I mean, oh, and don't we don't we also have a statistic on how many um, care workers have comorbidities themselves? Oh well, there was just the the AARP 2020 report on caregiving. It said that their study also reveals that family caregivers are worse in health compared to five years ago. So basically that caregivers are also in need of care themselves and that that amount of care that they need themselves is growing, increasing. And then when we talk about like compassion fatigue and caregiver burnout and just the stress, I mean, stress can mess you right up. So on top of, yeah, any existing issues you've got, stress is only going to exacerbate them. So, yeah, we got to do better. And I think we have, yeah, certainly room for improvement. And we don't have to totally reinvent the wheel because we could look to those quote unquote competitor nations for some better models than what we've got. And there's got to be more to it than just being up north that the Scandinavians (laughs) have figured out. Right. If anybody has figured out, I do love the cold weather. Um, but but yeah, there's there's like in in I'm remi- I'm trying to remember which country it is, but like when 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 you have a child, nurses go to your house and check yeah. in on the mother instead of forcing the mother with her newborn infant. So they are both um, they are both immuno. You know, they're not yeah. immuno 
their their immune systems are not you know yeah suppressed they're yeah, their immune systems are suppressed. Getting on, like, for most people, public transportation. I mean, as a child growing up, all the times I had to go to the hospital or to the doctor's office when I was just like, why can't the doctor just come here? Like, I am in so much pain. I am, you know, why is it that I'm the one who has to do, you know, and of course, my parents are the ones driving me. Right. Because the ambulance, you know, the ambulance is super expensive. And plus, we went to a different, we went to a different hospital altogether. Um, which we went to one that was 40, 45 minutes to an hour away, depending on traffic, as, instead of the one that was like right next door because of the quality of care wasn't there, which that in and of itself is like bonkers. Yeah. yeah. There's just so many levels of bonkers to all of this. But I think the takeaway is that, Mev, you found that really good quote on, as Americans, we find it increasingly difficult to agree on much in this country. And we talk a lot about how polarized things are and yada, yada. But from Mev's research, we agree on caregiving support. And we agree, you know, increasingly also on accessible and affordable health care in this country. This is from the Time's Up Foundation, which specifically focuses on getting more support and more more recognition towards social reproductive labor. For many voters in the 2020 election, caregiving has a direct impact on their personal lives. More than eight in 10 voters say the cost and lack of availability of both child care, 85%, and care for the aging, ill, or disabled family members, 86%, are burdens for most families in their community. It comes as no surprise then that voters overwhelmingly support policies to support caregivers and meet the demands of the current moment. Support for care policies is especially high among women, 93%, people of color, 94%, people ages 45 to 64, 93%, as well as 9 in 10 Democrats, 9 in 10 independents, and more than 8 in 10 Republicans. And the fact that Democrats and Republicans agree on something is just, you know, mind-blowing to begin with. So maybe we should start working on this. Yeah, yeah. Why isn't this a thing yesterday, last week, last year? If we all agree, it should be so. I mean, look, if you look at all these competitor countries, they've been doing this since the 90s. Like, we are literally 20 years behind. At least. Sometimes longer. So, you know, we have room for improvement. Obviously, it sounds like we overwhelmingly agree on these things. There's no reason why they shouldn't be put into practice. So really... We just need people in positions of power to do the right thing. Help us to care for each other. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good place to leave it for this week. Um, I'm Lou. I'm Rachel. I'm Mev. This has been Punching Out. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>